Our sermon text this morning is a brief text, a short one. It's the very beginning of Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. The first two verses, Philippians 1, 1 to 2. In this section of Philippians, Paul names himself, he names his Philippian audience, and he gives them a benediction, a blessing, as a greeting. But the way in which Paul does these things is so important. You see, Paul uses these two short verses to orient himself, to orient his Philippian readers, indeed to orient us as to who we actually are in this world. And he does this by telling us who we are in relationship to Jesus Christ. Yeshua, Messiah. He does this by telling us who we are in Christ. Listen carefully now to how Paul describes himself and his readers in relationship to Jesus. There is so much for us to ponder here as we think about who it is that we actually are in this world. Beloved, God's word is more precious than gold more precious than fine gold. It is sweeter than honey, sweeter even than the drippings of the honeycomb. Listen to it now. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers, And deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus far, the reading of God's word, it is absolutely true. And it is given to you because your Father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all the Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant us now by your Spirit to hear this portion of your Word and to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest it, that we may even more embrace and hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The Apostle Paul is rightly understood as perhaps the greatest theologian that the church has ever seen. Though he was not one of the original 12 apostles, his writings comprise a significant majority of the apostles' writings in the epistles in the New Testament. And our understanding of the Christian faith would be far less robust without his teachings, But what really is unique about the doctrines and teaching of Paul? Paul is well known, of course, for his teaching on God's sovereignty in all things, including our salvation. He goes to great lengths to talk about this. One thinks of Romans 9 through 11, for example. But one hardly needs to read Paul to find this doctrine in the Scriptures. God's sovereignty in all things, including our salvation, is taught all through the Old Testament. And the historical books and the Psalms and the prophets, it's there. 
Paul is also known, of course, well known for his teaching of justification by faith. But again, this doctrine does not originate with Paul. As Paul himself takes great pains to explain in his letter to the Romans, justification by faith is actually taught as far back as Genesis and God's dealings with Abraham and is expanded all throughout the Old Testament as well. Think, for example, of the prophet Habakkuk, Habakkuk, who taught that the just shall live by faith and indeed is quoted as Paul writes to Romans. However, there is at least one doctrine that was in some sense new, I think, unique with Paul, and it is a doctrine that I believe he learned directly from the Lord Jesus Christ, and he learned it in his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Remember, before his conversion and baptism, Paul, who was then referred to as Saul, was a great, renowned, notorious persecutor of the church of Jesus. He participated in the murder of Stephen and then inspired by this experience went about imprisoning Christians and taking them bound to the religious authorities in Jerusalem for punishment. But as Paul was Saul, Paul was doing these things on the road to Damascus, Jesus appeared in a vision of overwhelming light blinding Paul. And Jesus spoke to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul, Acts tells us, says, who are you, Lord? Who is this voice, this person? Who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. After this, Acts describes how Paul repents of his sins, receives baptism, and is brought into the Christian church as a disciple of Jesus, the one whom he met on the road to Damascus. In Galatians, we learn what happened after that. Paul says that after his conversion, he spent three years in Arabia, quietly studying and training and preparing for the call that Jesus had given him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Three years he took before he began to publicly preach the gospel. For those three years, Paul must have reflected many times, many times on the words that Jesus had spoken to him there on the road to Damascus. And I think he must have wrestled a great deal with this Question in particular, what did Jesus mean when he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting? For in a literal sense, Paul had not been persecuting Jesus himself. Jesus, after his crucifixion and resurrection, had already ascended into heaven by the time we read of Paul's persecution of the church in Acts. Paul had not been persecuting Jesus himself, but rather men and women who were baptized followers of Jesus. And yet Jesus had said, and Paul must have contemplated these words, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
I am Jesus whom you are, present tense, persecuting. You see what Paul must have realized during those years of reflection and preparation is that Jesus spoke in this way about himself. Because his connection, his communion, his union with the men and women who had been baptized into fellowship with him was so strong, so vital, so real, that to persecute them was the same as persecuting him. And thus was born the great doctrine of the Apostle Paul. A doctrine that appears in great detail throughout all of his writings. A doctrine that theologians have termed union with Christ. A doctrine that Jesus taught Paul. But what do we mean by this union with Christ? What are we talking about when we use those words? What did Paul mean? By union with Christ, we mean that if you are someone who belongs to Jesus, then this is what is true about you. The Holy Spirit, whom Jesus himself poured out on the day of Pentecost, has united you to your Savior, Jesus. If you trust in Jesus, in other words, if you belong to him, you don't live your life on your own. Rather, you are living in constant Fellowship, constant communion, constant union even with the risen Christ, the Christ who lives at God's right hand. When you wake up in the morning, friend, union with Christ means that Jesus is with you. When you go about your daily life and work, he is there. Christ is with you. You are doing those things in union with him, in communion with him and him with you. When you lie down to sleep at night, Jesus is with you. But how can this be? We might say Jesus, of course, possesses a real human body and soul even after his resurrection. He lives in God's presence in heaven while I live here with my body and soul on earth. We are far apart from one another and even more importantly, we're two separate persons. How can this work? How can he be united to me? The answer to this question is that the constant union between you and Jesus, a union, by the way, that will continue even after your death when your body is laid in the grave, this union is brought about by the divine person of the Holy Spirit. It was Jesus' special calling in the economy of salvation to be made incarnate and die and rise again for our salvation. That was his vocation. And so it is the Spirit's special work, his special calling to apply that salvation by uniting God's people to the one who has won their redemption, Jesus Christ. This is what the Spirit does, we believe. He unites the people of God to their bridegroom, their Savior. Now, exactly how the Spirit does this, I can't explain that to you. It's a mystery. It's a miracle. In much the same way that our partaking of, our communion with, our Lord Jesus and the Lord's Supper, that sacrament, 
is also a mystery and a miracle. But make no mistake, friends, the work of the Spirit uniting us to Jesus is real. As Calvin put it and said, Therefore, what our mind does not comprehend, let faith conceive that the Spirit truly unites things separated by space. This is what the Spirit does. He transcends the normal rules of space and time and brings us into union with our Lord Jesus Christ and keeps us united to him. So the effect of this great doctrine of union with Christ is that Jesus is always with you, friends. He's always with you, beloved. Always. Jesus is united to you in your suffering and you with him. Jesus is united to you in the secret sorrows of your heart. Those sadnesses that no one else fully knows about, that you don't even quite know how to articulate to other people. Jesus is with you in those places. He's united to you there. And he is united with you in your joys and in your triumphs as well. In fact, your union with Christ, friends, means that all the benefits of your salvation, God's grace, God's forgiveness, God's holiness, God's own eternal life are given to you, not in some generic way by God sort of waving his hands, but only through your organic and living union with the Son of God. Jesus himself taught his disciples this doctrine of union with himself by means of a great picture, that of a vine and its branches. Imagine a vine with a strong, thick trunk and leafy branches sprouting off of that trunk. Green and full of life. This is what Jesus wants us to think about. And then he explains this picture in John 15 by saying, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, whoever lives in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. This is what my union with you is like, Jesus says. Just as a branch of a vine or tree is united to the trunk, so are you united to me, Christ says. Just as the branch is dependent on the vine for its life, so you depend on me and my life, Jesus says. We are one with each other. And it is as I share my life with you that you will live and be fruitful in your life. Another perhaps more abstract but powerful still image of our union with Christ is given to us by the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3. You have died, Paul says there to his readers, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, Paul knows that the people to whom he writes in Colossians haven't literally died, right? They're reading his letter. But what he is saying is that if you are in Christ, then your old life, your old way of living on your own, in your own strength, by your own devices, that life is over. You have died. For all real intents and purposes, you have died and your true life is now hidden with Christ, the one who is your life the one who himself resides forever in God, in the bosom of the Father. 
Beloved, this is the great doctrine of union with Christ. And that doctrine is at the heart of what Paul wants to communicate to us all throughout his letter to the Philippians. We'll be talking about it a great deal as we go through this letter. And it shows up as well in these first two verses. Listen again to Philippians 1, 1 to 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, listen to how three times he names our Lord. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Three times in these two short verses, the Apostle Paul invokes the name of Jesus and expounds on his relationship to his people, his union with them. First, Paul identifies himself and Timothy as doulai, literally bondservants or slaves of Christ Jesus. The ESV translates this Greek word as servant, but that doesn't really convey the magnitude of what Paul is saying here. In our normal conceptions of servants, servants are employees. They can go from service to service and different place to different place. That was not the case for doulos, people who are doulos, who were slaves or bondservants in the ancient world. Paul is saying very straightforwardly that he understands himself to be a slave, someone who belongs to someone else, and specifically that he belongs to his master. Christ Jesus. He is not free to leave the service of Christ. He belongs to him. He is under his authority. He is possessed by his Lord. What Paul is saying is that he and Timothy, his fellow pastor, belong utterly to Jesus, completely. Jesus has claimed them for himself By his union with them, Jesus has made them his own. And this is the most deeply true thing about them. Notice that Paul doesn't say anything here about him being an apostle, though he might have. He doesn't say anything here about him being in prison, though he was. He simply describes himself as a doulos of Jesus, a bondservant, a slave of Christ, Beloved, we recite something very similar about our union with Jesus whenever we use the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism as we did this morning. My comfort in all things, we say, is that I am not my own. I don't own myself. I don't belong to me. But I belong to someone else. I belong, we say, body and soul, in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has taken me for himself. I wonder how much do we really think about what we say when we say that, what it means to belong body and soul in life and in death to Jesus. It means that Jesus is our master, and we live under his command. We have given ourselves to him, or more rightly, he has captured us, he has possessed us, he has taken us for himself, and our lives are no longer our own. I don't belong to me any longer. He will do with me as he wills, as he wants, which will not always 
or even often necessarily be what I would choose if I were my own, if I belonged to me. But this is what it means to be a doulos, a bondservant, a slave of Christ. The pastor and theologian John Wesley wrote a prayer reflecting on these matters, a prayer that we've used before in our worship on Sunday mornings. That prayer goes like this. Wesley says, writes this prayer spoken to God saying, I am no longer my own, but thine, he says to God. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. This is a prayer of relinquishment, of acknowledgement that he belongs to the Lord. Let me be employed for thee or laid aside for thee, exalted for thee or brought low for thee. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. That's a dangerous prayer to pray. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. Those are the words of a doulos, a servant, a slave of Christ. He cleanses prayer in this way. He says, And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Thou art mine and I am Thine. And that is the reward, friends, of being a bondservant, a slave of Christ. That He is ours and we are His. So be it, Wesley says. Amen. Beloved, to belong to Jesus means that we trust him to direct our lives, to send us here, to keep us there, to do with us as he wills, to make us full or empty as he desires, to give us what he knows that we need, which may be different than what we prefer. And he does all of this because he is our good and faithful Lord and Master the one to whom we truly belong. Then, in the next sentence in verse 1, Paul addresses the Philippians. And notice how he addresses them. He says, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. To all the saints in Christ Jesus, Paul says, more literally, to all the holy ones in Christ Jesus, to all the ones who are holy in Christ Jesus. Paul here is not commenting particularly on the moral quality of the Philippian Christians, right? They haven't recently crossed some threshold in their moral life that enables Paul to speak of them in this way. He is not saying that they are without sin by calling them the holy ones in Christ Jesus. What he is saying is that they, because of their union with Christ, have been made holy. A holiness that comes from outside of themselves. Indeed, they have been set apart for God. That's what holiness means in its essence, to be set apart, to be reserved, to be separated out 
for God. He is, in effect, saying the same things to these Philippian Christians that Moses said to the Israelites in our reading from Deuteronomy this morning, where Moses said, You are a people holy to the Lord, to Yahweh your God. This is who you are. You are set apart for Him. Yahweh your God has chosen you, Moses said, to be a people for His treasured possession, for His ownership, out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. And notice, of course, that Paul does not simply call his readers holy ones or saints and then stop there. No, it's part of a longer title, right? They are the holy ones in Christ Jesus. It is in their union with Him that they are saints, that they are set apart. To be united to Christ, beloved, means that God has chosen you to be holy and set you apart for Himself in union with His Son. As Paul put it in Ephesians 1, right? We heard this as well. God chose us in Christ. How did He choose us? Not arbitrarily, not generically. No, God chose us in Christ, in union with His Son, before the foundation of the world. And why? That we should be holy and blameless before Him. That we should be consecrated for Him. Right? Not for some other reason, not for some other life, but set apart for Him. To be His treasured possession. Friends, your life has dignity and meaning, not because of some intrinsic value in yourself, not because of something that you might or might not do, but because God has chosen you. God has elected you before the foundation of the world, because God has set you apart, separated you out for himself with intention. And he has done this in Christ in His Son, by uniting you for eternity to His Son who lives forever, Jesus the Christ. You see, to be united to Christ, Paul tells us, is to belong to God, to be God's treasured possession, to be holy and set apart for God, even as the Son Himself is holy and set apart for His Father, even as the Son is consecrated for his father. But that's not all. Paul is not yet done in this section of his epistle. He then says these remarkable words. He says, grace to you and peace. He is reiterating the ironic blessing right here. God, be gracious to us. Make his face to shine upon us and give us his peace. Number six, Paul is rephrasing this ironic blessing Grace to you and peace, he says, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, whom do we behold when we gaze upon the face of Jesus? We see the face of God. His face is the face of God towards us. And that face is one of grace and peace. Beloved, this finally is what it means for you to be united to Christ. It means that God is your Father. That the Apostle can say to you, grace to you and peace from God, not the Father, but God our Father. 
and that in Christ Jesus he has shown you his grace and given you his peace. In Deuteronomy 7, Moses explains to the people of Israel why it is that God has chosen them to be his holy people. He says, it's not because you are more in number than any other people that Yahweh set his love on you or chose you. For you are the fewest of all the people, actually. But it is because Yahweh loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers that, the Yahweh, that Yahweh has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Do you see what Moses is doing here, friends? He's using a kind of beautiful and compelling circular logic to try to find a coherent way of describing the mercy and grace of God. The Lord doesn't love you because you're strong and powerful, Moses says. No, Moses says the Lord loves you because he loves you. Beloved, this is the grace of God for you in Jesus Christ, his son. You can't find some deeper motive behind God's love for you. You can't dig under his love and find the real reason that he loves you. His love, his grace is not based on something else, something in you. You don't have to prove yourself to him. You don't have to keep doing something so he will keep loving you. No, your heavenly father loves you because he loves you. And he proves this because he gave you his son. It's as simple and as mysterious and as powerful as that. Friends, Jesus came to reveal God to us and he teaches us that this is what God's love is like. It's like a father who waits by the window, scanning the horizon for his son. The son who has rejected him and left and taken his inheritance and gone to a far country. That's what it's like. And when this waiting father, Jesus says, sees his son coming up over the hill in the distance, dressed in rags on his way home, he doesn't wait for him to arrive. This is what the love of God is like, Jesus tells us. It's like a father who doesn't wait for explanations, who runs to greet his son on the road, on the way home, and greets him, not with chastisement, not with some suggestions or tips, but with an embrace and a kiss and a robe and a ring and a feast. Friends, he loves you because he loves you. And he rejoices in the communion with you that he has established in his son. Beloved, this is God's love for you. And God's grace and his peace is given to you in this way and no other way actually than through your union with his son, Jesus Christ. It is the only way that God knows to give good things through his son, through the one in whom all of his promises are yes and all men. For he, our Lord Jesus Christ, is the vine, and you are the branches. And so, beloved, abide in him, abide in the vine, 
because you have died. And your life is hidden with this Christ who is your life. This Christ who lives forever in God. This is who you are. This is who you are, friends. Don't let anyone take that away. This is who you will always be. And it is good news. It is indeed the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your grace and peace. The grace and peace that you have given us in your Son, our Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you that indeed he is the vine and we are the branches. By your Spirit, Father, keep us near to Christ. Enable us to abide with him, that we also, like him, might live forever in your presence. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.